Hi, I'm Rima, and you're listening to Think Like a Scientist. In this show, we break down barriers between scientific thinking and modern-day actions. We do this by interviewing groundbreaking leaders for the result of providing you real-life tools and experiences that you can use to bring positive impact. Hi everyone, today we are going to be welcoming our guest Anika Vinze. She is the Associate Director of the Centennial Program within the Sabeti Lab at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. An epidemiologist by training, Anika spent a number of years in the global health arena with a focus on infectious disease surveillance and humanitarian affairs. Her work is focused on providing strategic guidance and leadership a surveillance and early warning system that detects viral threats in real time, allowing the global community to stop infectious diseases before they spread. She works closely with senior scientists and executives to increase impact and grow this effort in West Africa and beyond. This pandemic preemption system will not only detect viral threats in real time, but stop them before they spread. While Centennial was formed before the COVID-19 pandemic, it has played a critical role in response efforts while simultaneously setting the stage for how we can leverage next generation genomics and informatics to address future infectious disease threats. Anika holds a bachelor's in biological science from Rice University, a master's in global disease epidemiology and control from Johns Hopkins University, and a master's of business administration from Washington University. Let's welcome Anika Vinze. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Rima. It's wonderful to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start from the beginning. Um, when you were first starting out um, in your bachelor's, did you know that you wanted to go into global health and infectious disease? I knew I wanted to go into infectious disease in some, in some form or fashion. Uh, I was actually pre-med for a very long time, uh, but my initial training was in public health. My internships during college were in public health, and I very much was interested in working at a population level. And so ultimately, I decided to go into epidemiology, and the global arena really stood out to me just from my personal background with my family and also just uh, the interest that I have in, in viruses and that cross different borders. So a lot of it stemmed from my internships that I had with the Department of Public Health in Phoenix, so the Maricopa County Department of Public Health, in case anyone's listening from there. Uh, I, I actually started there when I was 16 um, during the West Nile outbreak in Phoenix during wow. the early 2000s. Yeah, so it was, a, it was a fascinating way to become introduced to the, the whole field of public health and epidemiology and specifically surveillance at the time. Um, so I was interested in, in pre-med, I was pre-med for a while, but ultimately realized that I was really interested in looking at populations as a whole um, and also in prevention rather than treatment. Uh, so that's really how I, I sort of made my decision to go into the public health arena versus medicine, but I do appreciate that they work very closely together and on two sides of, of health issues. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Sebeti Lab. Um, they mentioned that it was formed as part of response efforts for COVID-19. And how was it, you know, watching it unfold before it was announced the pandemic with all the knowledge and experience that you had already? It was really fascinating to watch it. I mean, this is something that I think epidemiologists and public health professionals from a scientific standpoint are always sort of looking out for um, and to really see it play out in real time on a global stage is is just it was fascinating to watch from a scientific standpoint and of course from a public health standpoint um, wanting to make sure that everything that we've learned and um, 
and know about uh, diseases and how they spread and how we can control them is employed. Uh, so it was it was really really great to be able to watch watch all of that in action. Uh, not so great to watch the the ramifications of the disease yeah. itself. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think from definitely from a scientific standpoint, it was fascinating and and was a an interesting interesting time to be in, involved in the field. What were the thoughts that went through your mind as it was happening? I think that's something that. Uh, really stood out about this pandemic in particular. Uh, I don't think anyone could have predicted the the sort of long-term economic effects that this would have, especially at the very beginning. I think as it started to unfold, we, we started to see maybe signs that this would happen. Uh, but at the very beginning, I think all of us were just trying to figure out what exactly was going on. Uh, and interestingly enough, I was in consulting at the time and joined the Broad shortly after uh, all of the, or really in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> um, so I saw, I saw sort of the business side of it and also oh, was wow. able to, to come back into public health and, and was inspired to, to get back to my roots, really. What's one misconception about the work you do? I think one thing is that it's, it's very glamorous. You hear global health and you think, you know, WHO, you think getting to travel internationally, which is all true. Um, but there is the day-to-day as well. I mean, a lot of it, uh, has to do with just managing people, managing projects. Uh, it's it's not all science all the time, uh, even though that is what really drives us. But there there are business aspects to it, which I think would would surprise people who aren't necessarily in it day to day. So, what's the most challenging part, really, for you? So, I think one really challenging aspect that is is often overlooked is it can be kind of political. Uh, we are working with with governments. We are working with other health entities. Um, we're working with uh, different groups on the ground, and so political in in the sort of politics sense, but also political in that it impacts people's lives. And so, you know, it is a challenge. You want to make the right decisions all the time, and sometimes you're working on very minimal information. And so, especially in in the context of a pandemic response. Uh, it can be quite challenging because you know that you know, everything you do and things you say actually have quite a quite an impact on a larger scale. A lot of you know this work is, is so challenging and it takes a lot of t- uh, it takes a toll on um, people who work in in this field. So, what drives you to do this work? I think that that same challenge is actually what drives me in that you really can have an impact at a very large level. Uh, you you impact lives of individuals, you impact lives of communities, uh, and it's something that I think differentiates the field of public health from medicine for me uh, in that it's, it's very prevention focused. And that's not to say that medicine isn't at all, but I think the, the whole driving force of public health is to make sure that people don't uh, get sick. What challenge did you spend the most time on this past year? I, I think there were a lot of challenges. <laughs> I think we all went through through quite a bit. So I think uh, the biggest challenge for me was really coming back in the middle of a pandemic. I was in consulting for a few years, uh, decided to make the switch back to epidemiology and public health and global health in particular in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, so it was coming back in and really getting back into the swing of it after being sort of on the on the sidelines, if you will, for a few years. So I was curious what um, led you to want to switch to public health again? It really, well, I, 
I always wanted to come back to public health. Uh, I was in global health for a number of years after doing my, uh, my master's at Hopkins and then decided to go do my MBA because I saw that there was really a gap in a lot of the leadership and management experience at nonprofits that I was working at. Uh, I was actually toying between an, a PhD and an MBA and ended up going the MBA route. And I thought it was a you know, fairly unique combination to be able to have some technical experience and also enough of a business background to help run organizations and projects. Uh, so going into my MBA, my feeling was always that I would come back to global health. It's really where my heart is. I went into consulting because there's a great opportunity to learn from a number of different fields and from the private sector in general uh, about best practices and how to really run efficient and effective programs. Uh, so I was, I think it was a confluence of things. I think one was just being at the point in my consulting career where I felt like it was time for me to switch back uh, to global health. And then of course, being in the middle of a pandemic, uh, realizing that, you know, this is when I can really contribute uh, to society and really contribute to um, helping, helping end this, or at least uh, wrangle it in some form or fashion. That's uh, really I'll, interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting because I really like how, you know, you were motivated to get your MBA because you thought that there was a lack of these technical skills at the nonprofits you worked at, because I feel like we often underestimate um, the skills that we may not get from other careers. I think your point is right, that a lot of people, you know, see one path for themselves and think that that is all that they need to and should do. And to some extent, it's true. I think you should always you know, follow what, what really speaks to you, which is why I ended up coming back to global health. But there's a lot to learn from other, other industries, especially being in the public health sector, uh, working with nonprofits. It, there is sometimes um, this thinking, or at least there was when I was <laughs> working in nonprofits, I think thinking has changed slowly. And I'm glad to see it that uh, business practices can actually be really beneficial to public health. How can we make the most of the grants and the funding that we get to do this work? Uh, unfortunately, public health is still fairly underfunded for what I, my opinion is that it should receive a lot more funding than it does. Uh, but I think, you know, making the most of what we, what we do have and what we can work with and having the greatest impact with that, um, there's a lot to learn from the way that businesses are run, that the private sector is run. Uh, so I think that it was hugely beneficial to my career. And I, I am glad looking back that I, I made that choice. Um, I think it was the right choice for me. And I think that it would hopefully, hopefully I'm able to help um, the global health field as well. I saw the project you were working on in at the Sebedi lab. And um, I also like, I think we, when we briefly talked before, you said that you, you're, team is plans to grow this in West Africa and beyond. And I found that very interesting and also essential because, you know, pandemics, we don't know where and when they could start. And especially we need it globally. So how does your team plan to grow this effort in West Africa? And why is it essential that we see these efforts being made global? Yeah, it's a great question. So we are starting in West Africa, like you mentioned. Uh, we really see this as a pilot to, to a global program. Uh, so we're working in five different countries. We're starting in Nigeria and then expanding from there. Uh, so we do have a plan to add a country or two every, every year of this five-year Sentinel program. 
And based on the results and the learnings that we have uh, as we start to implement this in West Africa, we are looking to expand as well. So we're building this in a way that uh, is scalable, that can be trans translatable to other regions and other countries um, with the understanding that there are local nuances, there are cultural nuances to the way that some of this work has to be done. Um, so this is really a basis for that. And we really do see this as a global opportunity because as we, as we all know now, viruses don't really have much regard for borders <laughs> and those yeah. are very much human constructs. And so uh, I think that this type of effort would be hugely beneficial on a global scale. And we really hope to see it uh, expand and really take root as part of public health systems, local public health systems in all of these countries and regions. And I was curious, as you were speaking, I wanted to ask, how has um, COVID-19 and the pandemic these past two years affected your project or your team's project? It's affected it pretty greatly. I will say the, the project in, in a way was very timely, uh, where this work by Dr. Savetti and Dr. Happy had been a, sort of a seedling of an idea and was funded just about a few months before the, the pandemic started to sort of take root, if you will, uh, in different countries globally. So uh, this work, they've been involved with it for, I believe, about a decade now. Wow. A number of years. Yeah. So this has been really a passion project uh, for them. I think for me personally, joining after it had already been uh, funded was extremely exciting uh, just to be a part of it. But I think that this is really sort of the culmination of their, their vision. And the pandemic itself has impacted it in, in that it has accelerated it, really. Uh, so a lot of what we were planning to do over a five-year time, time period or even you know in the first few years of the project, uh, we accelerated. So a lot of the technology development implementation in Nigeria was accelerated as well to really help respond to COVID. And so in a way it became a good uh, trial by fire for the, the technology that we have uh, to see how it will work. Of course, we're still refining it. Uh, we're still building on it and, and hoping to use what we've learned from, uh, from implementation during COVID, the COVID pandemic, uh, to, to build a, a really robust system down the line. And how are technologies like CRISPR going to aid in the efforts of the Sentinel project, like you mentioned in Nigeria as, at the moment? CRISPR technologies are really essential to this program. They are uh, the basis for a lot of our technologies that we're implementing. And genomic viral surveillance is it's gaining a lot of steam, especially with the pandemic. A lot of you know the genomic sequencing that's going on uh, will rely on on technologies like this. So, would you say these technologies would help in prevention? Because I know you mentioned prevention is the it's the critical thing with pandemics and viruses rather than treatment. I'd say that the technologies that we're employing with Sentinel are are really focused on just that. Uh, so the entire program is really focused on how can we detect viruses and identify them uh, ahead of it becoming something much larger, mm -hmm. ahead of it spreading quite a bit. 
so really getting to the source and also uh, reducing lag times between um, really when you when you take a sample to when you get the, the ultimate result and what exactly that result tells you. One thing I think we would have liked to know is that there was a pandemic coming, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would have been great to be able to sort of sequence events and, and think about how we would employ this technology uh, to best help keep it from spreading or at least help to, to corral it a bit. Uh, so I think that was one major thing that, that would have been really helpful. But uh, yeah, overall, I think that this is something that's been, uh, it's been in the works for a while now. And so we're really excited to see it come to fruition through, through the Audacious Project's funding of Sentinel. That's really exciting. More personally, what was one learning lesson did you go through ever since you begun your career and what did you learn from it? I think we touched on it a little bit before in that you can really learn a lot from other industries. I think that I, I was in global health and, and public health for a number of years and was really kind of, that was, that was my whole experience to date, uh, was really focused in public health. And when you branch out, you, you learn new things that you can bring back and help strengthen the field. Um, so I think that that is, that's been my biggest learning that, and that you, you might think you want to go in a certain direction and that could be your, your ultimate sort of goal and destination, but there are many ways to get there as well. Uh, I never thought I would do an MBA. I in fact, pushed back on the idea for a number of years, <laughs> uh, but ultimately I think it was a really good decision and it really helped me grow as a person and professionally as well. Uh, in your prior work at Accenture, which if the audience doesn't know, Anika worked at the lead as the lead epidemiologist. One of the case studies she worked on was using data to provide solutions to infant mortality in the US. And recognizing that these statistics prove inequities and racial disparities, what was one thing that surprised you the most throughout your experience in the study? The biggest thing that we learned, and a lot of it was actually through the interview process. So that project was really fascinating because we did, uh, it was kind of twofold. One was analytics and then pairing analytics with human-centered design and really understanding uh, the populations that we were trying to provide interventions for. And I think that historically there's, there's been a bit of a disconnect is what we found uh, between what the populations need and what is being employed or how it's being employed. And so I think closing that gap will be really, really important and really truly understanding what is needed and what is important for those communities and taking into account the cultural context. Uh, that is incredibly important. I think we speak about it a lot in public health and just seeing that it hadn't been employed to the extent that maybe it should have uh, in these situations um, was really eye-opening for me personally and is something that I will continue to make sure that I try and do to the extent possible uh, in, in all my work going forward. Uh, what would you say to, to those wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Uh, I would say that it's exciting and I would love to have you on my team. <laughs> Uh, but I think it's, it's a great career for anyone who is curious, anyone who is interested in really helping uh, the community, whether it's locally or globally. I think both are equally important. Um, one can't really thrive without the other. 
Uh, and also this career path that I've taken is, I think, different than what I expected, probably different than what a lot of people in public health would, would necessarily take. And so I would just say, you know, learn from any opportunity that you are given. Uh, and everything is a learning experience, really. Uh, and whether that ends up, you end up in public health or whether it takes you somewhere else, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and you can really have a lot of, of fun and a lot of um, good growth if you, you know, embrace the opportunities that are given to you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great thought because actually my first, uh, the first episode for this podcast, I uh, talked a lot about exploring, exploring different pathways and being open to exploring different uh, pathways that we may not expect when we first think about, you know, going to university. So it's a great thought that you brought that up. And I feel it's, um, it's really common in between many people as well. And we kind of feel this resistance between when going into new things. No, that's great to hear that she said that as well. Um, I would I would very much echo that. Keep an open mind, especially at university. Uh, I, I almost wish that I had taken more classes outside of, of bioscience while I was there, uh, but would encourage everyone who's listening, if you are in university, to do that because it can be really eye-opening. And just because you, you are determined to go one way doesn't mean you can't either learn from something else or find a path that maybe is really uh, really well aligned with you, you know, personally and what you want to do professionally. So yeah, keeping an open mind, fully agree with what she had to say. What's something that other people, what's something you believe in that other people would find pretentious or is uncommon? One thing that I, I don't know if it's necessarily pretentious, but I think that it's something that oftentimes we don't talk about in public health is uh, money and salary. A lot of times, and, and I was like this when I first got into public health as well, is really doing it for, uh, for the social good and as a, you know, as a sort of valiant effort because you feel like it's the right thing to do. Um, but I do feel like my personal opinion is that public health, I've said it earlier as well, is that it's very under, it's underfunded for what it really does for, for society. And so I think that talking about money or talking about salary um, is actually a pretty important thing in the field. And a lot of times, um, you know, people maybe aren't paid as much as they should be. And that is something that I think I, I fully support, you know, negotiating your salary, making sure that you have everything you need to be able to do the work that uh, is, is required in this field, which is hard. And sometimes it requires, um, you know, sacrificing some of your time or some of your um, comfort. And so I think that that is, it's important um, and it's often just not talked about enough in the field, especially for women and for um, people of color, especially. What were some of the challenges that you faced, especially as a woman in working in public health uh, I think one would be, you know, just talk about salary and like any sort of negotiation you feel like if you get an opportunity, you should just take it, uh, which in some, in some, uh, for some reasons is, is important. Like you, you do need to, you know, like mm -hmm. take the opportunities that come to you. So I think the other thing is uh, working internationally, safety is really, really important. And uh, as a woman, you know, unfortunately there are still places 
uh, that we can't or maybe shouldn't go alone, especially. And for this work, sometimes you have to go to places that uh, maybe aren't uh, aren't the best, and you have to take extra precautions, or maybe you can't even go. Um, and so that's one thing. It's it's a much broader issue, I think, than than any of us can solve individually. But it is something that stood out to me, where I had male colleagues who could go uh, to places, but a lot of times they would say, you know, maybe you shouldn't come with us, or uh, either that, or you know, even my family would would be concerned if I was going to certain places. So yeah. that's that's been a, a challenge, I think. And was it uh, was the resistance to going to those places just I guess the perceived um, danger of women going there, or was it um, an actual the actual danger that you know could happen if you went as a woman? I think part of it is perceived uh, in that you know you don't want to go into a situation and then figure out that it's it's maybe not the the you know best situation for you to be in. Uh, but also there are places where maybe not even just women, but maybe is a bit more dangerous. But uh, as a woman, you know, you might be targeted a bit more. Uh, so it's it's not recommended that you would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think part of it is, you know, historical context and part of it is perception. Absolutely. You know, maybe it would have been fine, but uh, perception of, of what it might be. Uh, entail situationally having these I wouldn't say I wouldn't say setbacks but um, I guess resistance as a as a woman compared to your male colleagues like how does it feel not being able to do some of those things compared to your male colleagues in, in the work in public health it's it's a bit aggravating I think that it is changing and I I've definitely gone to places where maybe it was recommended I shouldn't go to <laughs> Uh, but I think that in the end, you know, it's it's aggravating because you're trying to do something that's that's good and that's helpful. Uh, and in those instances, you know, that part of the way I think about it is that is the reality right now. It absolutely should change, uh, and that we need to work towards that. But there are also ways to continue to make a make a difference, even if you can't go. So what are some of the things that help you? deal with some of these things and and continue to do the work that you do something that helps is really it's talking to people whether it's my my peers and, and colleagues or even people who are in leadership positions people who are you know 10 15 20 years ahead of me career wise um, and understanding how they've navigated it whether it's uh, sort of the safety and traveling or it's even just navigating your career um, as a as a woman or as a person of color uh, I think that's been really helpful. And also, I just, I am very fortunate where I have a, a good support system. Uh, I have, you know, really, really strong friendships and family ties that have uh, definitely been there for me and, and helped guide me through some of this. And so uh, I think that's been, for me, very, I've just been in a very fortunate position where that's that's available to me. But I think also just, you know, talking to people, not just who are in the same position as you, but in people who are in different positions and learning from them as well has been really, really important and and help helpful to have advocates for you. What do you believe are the next steps with the Sentinel project at the moment? So Sentinel is just finishing up its first year. 
Uh, we're very excited to, to have gotten through it, have been able to contribute to the pandemic. Uh, next up, we are, we are starting to plan for what, what does Sentinel look like in a post-pandemic world? Uh, because right now it's been a lot of focus on COVID and our work has sort of been couched in the COVID, uh, COVID bubble, if you will. Uh, while we're, we're also trying to do things outside of that. So uh, the next steps are really figuring out how we adapt what we've done for COVID to, to address the, the future pandemics. And also how we might be able to, like we were talking about before, scale and expand uh, beyond West Africa. So there's, there's a lot of interest. Um, I think COVID has really brought to light uh, the need for work like this. And so that's, that's really what we're looking for next is uh, how we can help uh, preempt what's coming next and also help, uh, help on the COVID and with the new variants that are coming out and not coming out, but variants that are showing themselves uh, and, and also uh, work on that end while looking for the next one. Is there a particular reason why the Sentinel project started in Nigeria first? So Dr. Sabeti and Dr. Happy have a long history of, of working together. Uh, they've been working on different efforts for a number of years. And so there, there are a few different reasons. I'd say one is the really strong ties that we have between the teams. Uh, also the incredible infrastructure that Dr. Happy has at the ASCID lab, uh, which he is the director of there. And also uh, the need in that in the part of the world. Uh, so I think all of that combined really, really drove us to start there. Um, that said, there are a number of places that this could have started. Uh, and so I think as we start scaling globally, there are different areas and countries that that will certainly would like to engage with and, and make sure that this technology uh, is adopted. Yeah, I believe, like you said, this is going to be really important for the next decade or so. And I hope to see this um, scale up even more. And I am really excited to see this. I'm going to ask something that's a bit different. What would you ask yourself that I did not ask you? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would ask, do you think going corporate changed you at all? And I, I feel like there aren't a lot of folks in public health who go into uh, the corporate sphere. And to be honest, I was a little bit apprehensive about doing it because I thought it was such a different, uh, such a different environment, such a departure from my, my background that it, it may not jive. Uh, but I think that what a lot of this like thread that I, you know, have seemingly had through this, our conversation here uh, of learning, um, I think going corporate, it allowed me to sort of find my voice in a way. Um, and I found that, you know, there was a lot of space, there was a lot of encouragement for uh, making sure that your voice was heard, making sure that you, you took ownership of a lot of things, uh, even if you didn't feel like you necessarily were, were fully prepared. And it was such a phenomenal learning experience to be able to come out the other side and say, Yes, like I, I'm comfortable speaking my mind. I'm comfortable uh, really making sure that, you know, folks know what I'm thinking uh, and that that holds value in a room. Um, so I think that that really was um, a big learning for me and something that has been a, a bonus for personally and professionally. I know for the young people watching this and even adults watching this, um, they may struggle with wanting to 
find their voice, but fearing rejection. Because I think when people want to put themselves out there, it's not just the fear of putting themselves out there, but more so the fear of rejection. I think it's, I look at it in two ways. One is rejection in the sense that you don't get what you don't ask for. So if you don't ask, nobody else is going to be the person who is asking or, you know, advocating for you unless you do it for yourself uh, and that you're comfortable doing that. And so I, for me, that, that's one big reason that I, you know, had tried to get over my fear. I, like everybody else, have, have certainly dealt with a fear of rejection, still do in many, many instances. Um, but I think just keeping that in the back of my mind has been really helpful. Uh, and then also that you, you learn if you, what's the saying you win or you learn instead of you win or you lose. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's maybe a little bit corny to say, but it's, it's, no, true. it's, perfect. <laughs> it's, it really is, it's the simple things like this, that really just, it's true. But with these rejections that we all deal with, you know, rejection is inevitable. We're all going to deal with it somehow. And we're going to have some setbacks. And like you said, it's what we learn from it and what we take from it that mm -hmm. will help us continue to grow. So what were some of the rejections that you have faced in the past year or a few years? I think one thing, and maybe it's it was more than a few years ago now, at least for me, but it's still very vivid in my mind, is applying to jobs in the global health space mm -hmm. is hard. Uh, there's this strange cycle of you need global experience to get global experience and and that's difficult to get. And so you go through potentially, I, I, you know, went through a lot of rejections until I found a job that, you know, I was suited for and that was suited to me. I think that's, that's a big one that I think a lot of people will go through and everyone at some point uh, faces that, but you, you learn through the process about uh, what you really want and what you're looking for. And, uh, you know, what made a strong application, what didn't, uh, asking for feedback is, is really, really helpful. So I think that that's probably one of the most vivid, at least in my mind. Yeah. Uh, I really yeah. admire your determination because, um, like you said, it's important knowing not just, you know, what you want, but also to distinguish what you don't want to do. And I think that's really important. So, um, what skill do you think is, most essential part of with the work that you do? I think being flexible or adaptable is really, really important. Uh, things change quite often uh, and quite quickly sometimes. Uh, and being able to adapt to not only changing situations, but different personalities that we deal with. We deal with people from uh, at, a, at a very local level all the way up to uh, in some cases, you know, very senior political leaders uh, or very senior executives. Um, so I think being able to kind of shift and change and be able to sort of roll with the punches, if you will, is is really important. Do you think that that part of that skill changed as you went into the field or are you more flexible now compared to how you were, for example, in undergrad? I, I think so. I don't know if it's necessarily being part of the field or just uh, just the length of time in that you know I've been working now, but uh, I think that I, I've always been a little bit flexible, but uh, definitely have learned that that is a necessary skill uh, and something that is is absolutely critical to to being successful. What is one thing that most people don't know about you, but is an integral part of who you are? 
I think the one thing, and, and they're sort of tied together, is that I, I tend to be uh, very observant and read into things. So whether it's nonverbal or verbal um, cues, especially from people who I've just met. So I tend to sit back sometimes and, and people think I'm a little bit quiet maybe when they first meet me, but it's really that I'm just uh, kind of taking in and, and learning about whoever it is who's sitting in front of me, which, uh, and I think we were just talking about this a second ago, but it's, it's harder over Zoom. Thank you everyone for listening in. I'm Rima and today we had the opportunity to speak with Anika Vinze. I hope you learned a lot. It was all so valuable and all the people listening in will take a lot from it. So thank you for listening in and I'll see you next time. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening in. I'm Rima and this is Think Like a Scientist. Mm-hmm.